Good evening. Welcome to the Laughing Monkey Music Show. Today I'm Steve Gorman. How are you? I am all right, my man. How about you? I'm doing good. Steve is doing radio and he has another band going on, most famously known for the Black Crows. But I thought we'd touch base today and talk about what's going on now. Uh, introduce people that don't know. He's got his show is syndicated and I'll have the links to, to his website. You can find all the affiliates and everything and check out the show. And we can talk about what's going on with his, his other band right now. Just start the show off. Um, let's have you talk about radio, though, for you. Going from being on one side, being a musician and performing all yeah. the time, and then going right to radio. It's transition. What was that? Um, it was, well, it was pretty unorthodox because I started in sports talk radio specifically, um, you know, for a decade. I, I was a broadcasting major in the mid-80s at Western Kentucky University. My oh, my okay. thoughts my thoughts then were that I would be a sportscaster. Um you know, at, at around 19, it dawned on me I wouldn't make the NBA. Um, you know, it's like slowly but surely I realized, oh, wait, I'm nowhere near good enough to even play college basketball. OK, fair enough. But a huge sports fan. And and I was at a school, as it turned out, with a good broadcasting department and I had a good voice. And I just thought, well, I love sports and I can talk. So let's do this. So, I mean, without a whole lot of thought, that's what I was thinking would happen. Um, obviously I decided to drop out and buy a drum kit and pursue that first. Um, that went well. Um, I took yeah. me off on a whole nother trajectory for a long time. When sports talk radio started blowing up in the late nineties, um, you know, like the first time I ever heard the Jim Rome show, the first yeah. time I ever heard him, he was talking about the replacements of all bands and, and then people called in from all across the country to talk about the replacements on a sports talk show. And I was, I was literally doing landscaping in my front yard. I'm like planting things and digging holes and listening to the radio. And I thought, Oh my God, what a cool thing. Like sport. Cause everybody I know loves sports and music. Yeah, like my whole sense. life was all my friends. Who's your favorite band? What are your favorite teams? That's it. That's like the start of every bar room conversation. Yeah. And so that idea was planted long time ago in my head that man there I could do that I, that's something there for me but the crows were uh the black crows at that time were 100 percent of my time you know it wasn't anything I thought about doing I just thought I could do it one day whatever very disparate thoughts and feelings about it um for a few years later 2004 I moved to Nashville uh my my family we moved here uh a few years after that in pick up line at preschool as where all the great connections in life occur. Once your kids start school, you start meeting all this new group of people. It is another weird, dad it? <laughs> in line. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter's dear friend, uh, they had just met and they were best friends. They're four years old Which or five years old at this time. And they're their parents. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're still good buddies. They're the other dad was a local sports talk guy, you know, on the local station here in Nashville. And we just started, we're shooting the shit in, in pickup line one day. And he goes, Oh, you should come in and sit on the show sometime. I said, sure. And I started doing that. And I used to do radio hits for the black crows all the time. I'd go to the rock station and yeah. do stuff. I'd been on the mic a bunch. I started sitting in on a local sports talk show every now and again, I'd go in for an hour and, and it was just always fun. And I, and I'm good in those settings. I'm confident I could kind of hold court, you know, and I knew that it was like a, here's this rock guy talking sports. And so I would just come in and just take over because I don't do normal sports thought, thoughts or talk. After I'd been on the show a few times, the PD said, man, you want to do a weekly segment? You know, I'll get you a sponsor. We could make this happen. 
And I said, actually, I'd rather have my own show, which is a hilarious thing to say. That's why I said it. I was being funny. And his response was, really? What is it? And I said, well, how about musicians talking sports? And this is Nashville, you know, and he literally went, yeah, what about Sunday nights? I mean, it was like that. And he goes, let's get lunch tomorrow and talk about it. And like 10 days later, I was on the air. It was called Steve Gorman Sports. And and I was just nowhere in the right. I, I was so underprepared. And, you know, <laughs> it's one thing to sit in on another show. But it, I went in on a Sunday night. It's like 8 p.m. on a Sunday. It's the summer. No one's listening. But that red light went on. And I had to say, this is Steve Gorman Sports. And... And I literally was like, oh, my God, I've made a huge mistake. And then by the end of that one hour, I was actually having fun. And it just started there. Um, long story short, I did it off and on for a few years here in Nashville. I'd go on tour, and then I'd come back, and he'd give me some Sunday nights. I immediately started seeing it as a down the road someday this might come into – this might be something I could really do. For a while, I didn't do radio. I did a podcast for a couple of years that did really well. I mean, this is in nine and 10 before podcasts yeah. were, you know, and I remember then thinking, oh, I, I think I missed a boat on these, you know, because um, because then in 11, I went back to radio when I was home. And so I was doing local sports talk radio on five days a week for two years. And then Fox Sports Radio gave me a show nationwide. I mean, the whole thing was very much coming in through the side door. Um, it's amazing, but that's a really long-winded way of saying. Um, in a weird way, it was always kind of in the back of my mind, and then it just started. One thing led to another, and I did sports for a long time. It really got old, you know. It got kind of burnt. Our our sports show on Fox Sports Radio was very different, very unique. My cousin was my co-host, and we just have an entire language and shtick of our own, and we wanted that show to sound like nothing else on the network, and and we were we accomplished that for sure. Um, after a few years and the new people running the network, they were very cool to us because they said directly, we don't get it. Like the guy that hired us left. And then all of a sudden we were like, the new guys were like, you guys should talk more about sports. This is called Fox sports radio. And we were like, yeah, we'll try, but you know, but it also just, it, it, it ran its course. You know, you can tell when something feels, I learned if I learned one thing from being in a band that uh, all those years, you know, I learned to trust when something no longer feels like it used to. And then I tried to look ahead and say, well, is it fixable? And if so, do I even want to fix it? Maybe it's time to do something else. And that's ultimately what happened with Steve Gorman Sports. For a variety of reasons, it just it was just a matter of, okay, it's not, it's not how long are we going to be on the air. It's how long are we going to stay? And let's 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 get out of here. And 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 we had a great run and it was uh, we had a really great last show. Like they they let us know way ahead of time, hey, here's an end date. It was all totally cool. So, so I really loved it, and I don't miss it at all. I don't miss preparing a sports show every day. It, it, it's it's actually a lot of a lot goes into it, and um and it was kind of after a while I just got drained with all the. It wasn't an argumentative show. It was trying to be an antidote to angry guys yelling about sports because, you know, and and after a while you couldn't I couldn't help myself. You just find yourself creating arguments for content and that that wasn't our thing at all we were you know we were not gonna fit into a square hole or whatever that analogy is anyway uh, i got off the air in the fall of 18 and right away i got a call hey are you interested in doing classic rock from another network and a guy i'd worked with before and i said yeah but i want some time off and as it turned out it was exactly one year like steve gorman sports went off the air 
I think September 7th of 18 and then Steve Gorman rocks hit September 9th of 2019. It was a perfect, I took a year away, finished the book, edited it, got it released, you know, did all that in that time. And then, um, and then started the classic rock show, which is an entirely different skill, same muscles, different game, you know, like short, much shorter segments for me, but it's a bunch of music and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a standard classic rock show that's on five nights a week now nationwide. Put the, we put the log together and, and it's not, yeah, I don't have to Google who was the starting point guard in 1969, you know, for a band, right. you know, I, I know a lot of that stuff already. And there's, I do look up stories for certain things at times, but, but a lot of this show is already, it's just me chiming in on an opinion or a story about my life related to the song we're listening to. It's a whole different ball game than doing sports talk. I can hear that. I, uh, that's how I am with this podcast. I, I know you, I know yourself, but every now and then I get a guest on, I don't know a lot about, and it's like a lot of work as opposed to just having a conversation. Yeah. It's like two different yeah. worlds. I, I went to school in Atlanta before I for a recording at the Art Institute. Same time year, the first album, the first album broke. So, okay. but, so at that time, but we, one of the things we learned about was like radio and recording everything. But radio, some people don't realize is it can be one of the scariest things because just you and there's no feedback or there's no audience. It's just crickets. Yeah. You know, it, it's one of I want to think I'll give you props because doing that is hard and you used to have an audience yeah. clapping well, for you and this is you alone in the mic. Well, the, well, the good thing, I tell you what, that's one thing that Twitter saved us on Steve Gorman sports. Once Twitter took off in, for, for sports radio, we got feedback through the show every day, constantly. And we really embraced that. Like our sensibility, the producer of that show brand, my buddy, Brandon Gannett's and I, we put the show together locally. And then when it went nationwide, he didn't want to be on the mic. So he became the producer and I brought my cousin in. Brandon and I, the way people, when social media was first, you know, 10 years ago, everybody's looking at Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we were just Twitter people. It's just that simple. Like it's faster, it's quicker. It, 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 it you get more for wit than insight. You know, it's funny. Mm -hmm. It's just, it was, it was, Twitter was hilarious 10 years ago. It, it was I know great. people might find that hard to believe, but it was a really fun place to spend an hour it was it was great and it worked great for the show because we encouraged people constantly to hit us up on twitter and they did and we got feedback and then because taking phone calls is awful you know callers are terrible for radio they they all the ums and hemming and hawing and and then they try too hard to be funny and they don't you know you learn really quickly to just go 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 it's forward momentum you got to keep people's interest and and you want it to feel more like an actual conversation as opposed to a stilted one where you're waiting for some guy who's been waiting nine minutes on hold and then suddenly he doesn't remember what he wanted to say. So we got rid of phone calls almost immediately and just responded to tweets. Um, so that was all great. That that feedback was helpful. When I first started doing local sports talk, yeah, that wasn't happening. And it's weird because then you are looking at the phone and going, please, please, someone call and then when they do call, they call to say, what do you think you're doing? Your show sucks. And then you're like, oh, no, you know, it's pretty uh, it's funny. Still, radio was hard. I did radio for a while when I was younger, too. That's why yeah. I wanted to do I think, I think, I'll, tell you one other, I'll tell you one other thing that helped is being the drummer, I didn't work the crowds. I wasn't someone who was actually focused on audience reaction. Um, gen I mean, generally speaking, as a performer. You know, if a singer or a guitarist went into the radio studio, they would probably feel that lack of feedback a lot more harshly than I did. Right. You know, just to, now that I'm thinking about it, I I never concerned myself with trying to perform for the audience. That was everyone else's job. I was just trying to 
keep the thing where it needed to be. You know, I, Which I'm, is what I'm, you're doing I'm, now, though, right? Think yeah, about it. What's that? You, you, you were the engine of the band. Yeah. And what, is, what do you do when you're doing radio? You're the engine of the show. So right. You're still kind yeah. of, it's not about your ego. It's about the show. Just like no driving. backseat driver for sure. Um, and, and that's, and I've often attributed that to the fact that I played sweeper in soccer my whole life too. It's like, <laughs> you know, I'm running the field, but no one knows it, but me, that's my, it's always been my sort of mindset when I'm doing stuff. You like the backdoor ninja attitude. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so actually, so we're all over backwards here. So after the crows though, you, and actually during the crows, you started trigger hippie, right? It was like towards the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Trigger hippie. Oh. The it's first time band. we played, so, we, we played a show as Trigger Hippie in 2009. Um, first time I used the words Trigger Hippie, but that that really wasn't anything that the band became. But it was. But Nick, the bassist, Nick Gobrick, and I were the mainstays and the founders and the constants of Trigger Hippie. Uh, and so, yeah, back in 2009, we did a one-off gig in Macon, Georgia, and used that name um, with Oddly Freed and Jimmy Herring, and it was just a night of covers as a fundraiser. And it was a blast when we decided to, hey, let's actually get some original music going and let's find some people to be in a band. We thought, well, that was actually a cool name. Let's just keep that name Trigger Hippie, even though it's different people, because, you know, one off gig, it didn't matter. The band sort of by design was initially it was the rhythm sections here and let's see who else shows up, basically. Um and it's hard to build a band in that, you know, it's much easier to for a singer to go find a rhythm section than for a rhythm section to find a singer for right. a lot of reasons that I think are probably pretty obvious. But um, that's how we've always done it. And the first lineup that was like an official lineup, we put a record out in 14 and toured and did very well, but it was not built to last. For a variety of perfectly sensible reasons, that lineup was just not going to stay around very long. Everybody was very busy. Um, Nick and I wanted to continue and so we did we we went away for a couple of years and then by 16 we're like hey let's we got all these songs man let's do something let's find some people that want to kind of stick around and so you know we put another record out in 2019 and and for the trigger hippie 2.0 it was a whole different mindset it really was like okay this is going to be the band like we're actually this lineup is it and if someone can't make a gig we're not going to fly in a buddy to fill in for them like this is the lineup and wow. um and then you know shortly after the record came out of course there was this pandemic you may remember yeah, um, I heard about that, that signed lied us immediately and 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 damn near permanently because it's really hard to put the pieces back together when you aren't a totally established touring act you know we were rebuilding relationships with promoters um and then it went away again and right now the last thing a promoter wants to hear is Hey, I don't know if we'll sell any tickets, but do you want to play a gig? You know, I mean, we're, we have gigs and we're booking stuff for next year, but the idea of it being like a full-time band, that, that's not even, we're not even thinking about it in those terms. It could be because, which you know, is, and, and, and trust me that I was going to say, which is fine. Cause at 57, I'm not interested in doing 150 gigs next year no, in, in any capacity. You're, you're a seasoned, it's a good band though. They're all seasoned musicians though. So it's not like people are oh, yeah. walking into some, some weird ad hoc jam session trying to be something you guys are a good band yeah. so even if they didn't know you and they walked into a show or a performance or a festival people are gonna start dancing going i like this you know that's the yeah kind of vibe i, you I think it's do. a great band i no i really do i think i think we're fantastic and that and and that's a part of me that that makes it okay that's really the point i mean i don't have to, you know like again I, I i feel like if we were struggling to figure out who we were i might be 
be more inclined to try to play more show. Like I would feel like we got to do something and I don't feel that at all. Like when we get together and play, it's badass, and we have a, we have a great time and, and it truly is like, we're still playing most of the shows we play is a lot of people who haven't seen us before. And it always goes over well and people dig it. And that's all I'm looking for at this point. You know, I, I, I get every itch I need musically that band scratches. So as, as far as it is right now, it's all good with me. That's awesome. Well, and then, so during the pandemic, and, and, and that's not to say, not hey, sorry. No, I was going to say, that's not to say I wouldn't love to see something, you know, if, if more opportunities came up, of course, if someone opens a door, we'll go through it. But, but, you know, the idea of just grinding, trying to make something happen, I don't even know what that something would be. So it's where it sits right now is perfectly cool with me. I don't think anybody knows how that grind works anymore. After, after this, I think it really changed the world yeah. and clubs and touring. And it's like, people can't even get, you know, get buses and, and vinyls out mm-hmm. and merchandise. Everything's out the window right now. It's literally just a, a grab for what, what a band can put yeah. together, especially on the, on the mid, you know, on the second to third tiers. I mean, if you're, if you're going to be a Beyonce or Billy Ellis or something, you know, you got your thing going on, but below that, you know, it's, it's a hard run right now for anybody. So I, I think everyone's trying to figure out the new model. You know? Yeah. I have, I have two nephews who are both full-time musicians. Um, they're brothers. Uh, one is the <laughs> singer and guitarist. And, what? No, they're not in the like, same band. No, no, come on. It's kind of funny when you said Oh, well, I, I've got like 18 nephews. I, for, I'm from a huge family. I was just I know, stressing it's, that it's not from two, it's not two right, different right. brothers of mine's kids. They, my, my brother, Jim, you know, three, two of his three sons are both musicians. That's, that's the easiest way to say what I was trying to say. Um, Jeff is in a band called Illiterate Light and they they, they put a record out in 19. They have another one coming out in January and they're from Harrisonburg, Virginia, fantastic band. And they're a fully functioning. They've got everything, you know, they've, they were on Atlantic records. They've got management agent, you know, they're full on operation and they're tremendous. And they were just going when the pandemic hit. I mean, it was all right there. So they had a really rough time, you know, at 30 years old, right. When all the pieces, the dominoes are all falling. And then for them to get it, the plug pulled was really tough and they got through it and they're back out now operating full-time and they're going to be great because they they're a band that that again anybody that ever sees them goes holy shit this is real um and then my other nephew his brother eggy's a drummer in a band from denver called the kind-hearted strangers and they're just kicking you know they're out playing a lot of shows but those guys are you know that's guys who are in it for real like full-time and it is at this point in time it is so much tougher than it's ever been you know And, and they're figuring it out they're 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 bright guys and they're, they have good people they're playing with and that's all it's going to find, they'll find their way, whatever that way is supposed to be. But I cannot imagine being in my twenties in the year 2022 and thinking, okay, let's go hit the road and figure out, find an audience. It just sounds impossible to me. Well, it's not just being a band. You're being a manager, you're being everything. A lot of the labels are looking for turnkey and they can kind of come in and just kind of have it all done for them already now. And at that point, the fans are like, why do I need this? I just need a distributor and that's it. I mean, at this point, so I think, you know, a little more business it's, the artists. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a it's, yeah, like you said, it's so different. They're looking for, you know, in the old days, A&R guys, they didn't want a band that was great. They wanted a band that was good, that they could put the finishing touches on. I mean, it makes right. sense. You want to mold, right? you know, everybody that ever made it per se, every musician that's gotten a deal and toured and had success knows another musician or another band from their hometown that's awesome that never went anywhere and my theory has always been if you're too good 
then the A&R guy's bored. He's like, well, what am I going to do for you? You already have it figured out. I mean, right. you know, there, there's just a lot of really good artists. You know, I, th- I mean, the the magic of the timing of the my band, Mr. Crow's Garden, back then meeting George Draculius was we were, we had a lot of potential and talent, but we hadn't figured out what to do with it yet. And he saw exactly what our strengths were. And he he saw a band that he was like, oh, I know exactly what to do with these guys if they're interested in working with me. And that worked out really, really well. And we and like I said, there were other bands that I'd go see and go, man, they blow us away. And nobody was interested because they just, they, they, you know. What did you they, guys they, sound it like? It just seems like there wasn't enough to. We were in, in 1988 when we met George. We still had a little bit of a jangle, REM-influenced, Southern indie, not alternative, but like literal, you know, back then, independent was a real word. Indie music, you know, we loved, um, you know, we did Birds covers and, uh, you know, more, not country like country now, but country rock. Graham Parsons was a big influence. The Birds, you know, Green on Red was one of Chris's favorite bands, Paisley Underground stuff. And then, of course, REM was just this, uh umbrella over the entire indie scene in the southeast in the 80s um and we were figuring the long riders was another band we really took a lot of cues from so there was there was that going on we were in the process of but but we were starting to learn covers by like we started doing like aerosmith covers and we were trying to really stretch ourselves and you know what if a song had more than four chords (laughs) let's see what might happen you know um when George met us, we did an Aerosmith cover and we did a Stooges cover. And then we did like eight originals. And the first thing he said was, well, your songs are no good and you guys aren't very good, but those covers were kind of cool. You know, basically and he saw something in us. There was a kindred spirit and he just thought anybody in 1988 that's playing Iggy Pop and Steven Tyler in the same set, there's something going on with those guys. Um, and right after we met George, uh, you know, he he like I said, he saw right away in my playing and in Rich's playing uh, what we were good at, what we were naturally inclined to do, you know, the, like there's a groove there. There's a vibe there that we weren't taking advantage of. And then of course, Chris just had an amazing stage presence. It wasn't in your face. He was still pretty inward on stage. He had a lot more, you know, look at me, don't look at me young guy trying to figure out his stage persona, but the, but there was a, you couldn't take your eyes off of him. He had a real intensity, and it was not manufactured on any level. It was real. I mean, George saw the band a year after I first saw Mr. Crow's Garden, and the first time I saw Mr. Crow's Garden, I was like, "Holy shit! Look at that guy! There's something going on there." And George had the same reaction. So he saw right away there was something there. We didn't know what we were doing with it, but 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 he could see that that there was something there worth you know working with and trying to pursue. I. I heard- it's interesting because I, when I was in college, and I, I got the tape when it came out. It was like right when it came out, and I was in Atlanta. So, you know, obviously, you guys are from Atlanta. And um, some guy in the studio I was working with goes, Oh, yeah, you like Black Crows? I'm like, Yeah. He goes, he goes I had their demo tape, Mr. Crow's Guard. It was like some punk crap. I didn't like it. I'm like, Punk? Mm-hmm. And at the time, because you didn't have the internet, you didn't have anything, I just knew of that. I'm like, How did they go from punk to this? Like, so it kind of it plays was, it in. It wasn't punk. Eight. It was just. Well, people have a. Well, well it wasn't punk. Things. It was fast. there was i mean everybody liked punk rock i mean you know but but it was just fast jangly music you know the the demos they recorded before i was playing with them it was very very uh, rem's the obvious 
touch point. So I'll keep saying that. But it was just it was like early REM. The songs are at a way faster beats per minute than you realize until you try to play them. They're yeah. it's just go, 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 go. So there was that going on. And it was just, you know, volume in place of ability, you know, in that regard. Kind of like punk, I guess. But um, but the thing about Mr. Lose sight of this, but you know, everybody eventually the growth curve of a real band, it's really steep and really fast. Once you figure something out, you apply it and your whole band ch- we sounded like a different band every three months, you know, because we were learning how to play individually and collectively. We were all learning. So and every time we wrote a new song, we added it to the set and dropped an old one. I mean, if you saw Mr. Crow's Garden for once a quarter in 1988, you had it by the the band was so different from the beginning of that year to the end. You know, you, you we wouldn't have played if you saw us every three months, you would have heard a few of the same songs. If you saw us in January and saw us again in November, not one of the songs would have been the same. You know, and and we we had added a guitarist and we were we were learning different, more interesting covers. Like it was a 1988 was the year when we just went from, you know, this could be kind of cool. So this is actually getting cool. The arc in that time period is great. And that's what any band does. That's what you're supposed to do. You know, so locally people are like, what are they doing? They don't even know who they are. And it's like, no, we were just growing. We were just finding ourselves, you know, it's not, and trust me, it's not pretty in real time. Because for every great song, for every cool song you write, you write two that kind of suck, but you don't know the difference back then. You're just, you're just figuring it out. The one thing we had was a sense of alacrity. Like we never wanted for ambition. So, you know, that's a, that's a big part of it. Now you said before you were, you were actually still working when the album came out at a record store. Yeah. The day Shake Your Moneymaker came out, I was putting it in the bins at Wax and Facts and Little Five Points. Oh, that's I was going to ask where you were at. Okay. Yeah, you're working a little fun area. Um, yeah, no, it, trust me, it was not how I imagined my first album coming out. I, I, I thought there would be some champagne involved and possibly a, uh, you know, a, a room full of adoring fans. And instead, I was just instead I was just sitting there like, well, guess I'm gonna just work today at the record store and see what happens. <laughs> well. Luckily, it worked out well for you guys. But you, you know, I said, with the sound, you guys changed so much. And um, and it's people. I want people to check out this book. It's great. There's a lot of stories. I don't want to give away too much, but I want to just touch on a few things, if you don't mind, with the growth and, and some of the changes from, from Shake Your Moneymaker. Obviously, you guys took some time and, and really grew. But then the Southern uh, Harmony Musical Companion once again was another the leap year. It was another sound that sure was looks like kind of almost like light. I mean, you can see the progression, but it was still almost another, it felt like there's another group again like the, the well the it talent, was a different songs. band i mean it was it was the band two two things real to put it simply shaker moneymaker was a band who were pretending to be a band looking back now we were a real band but right. we'd never made a record before we'd never right. been in the studio really before and it was paint by numbers a producer leading us by our you know here taking our the ring in our nose and pulling us to where he needed us to go well, we went out and toured for 20 months and we took we took the gigs very seriously. Um, we really wanted to be a great band. You know, we we listened to a lot of Little Feet and Led Zeppelin bootlegs, just as an example. Like we weren't listening to them going, hey, that rocks. We're like, listen to that. Where are these connection points? What do they do? Um, two, things, two things were going on there. Like I said, the band that made Shake Your Moneymaker toured for 20 months and played 
you know, over 300 shows. And so we were, we became a very formidable rock and roll band. Like the band that, that we sounded like on Shake Your Moneymaker, we became that actual band. Like we, we were a, we were a world-class rock and roll band. And then along the way, we added Ed Harsh, who was a phenomenal musician. And he was a big yeah. part of that growth. He was a, he was a, 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 a music teacher for all of us and not in a specific by design way just when you add someone that great to the mix everyone's going to raise their game and we did it without thinking it, it was you know it was a it wasn't effortless but it was mindless it was just completely like we got to keep up with that guy so he was a humongous influence on the band throughout the calendar year 1991 he started with us in january the tour ended in october and again like i said before if you saw us in january 91 and saw us in october 91 you would have been like man that's a whole different band right and then on on top of that, we also for the second record added Mark Ford, and and I think that's the instantly that's the thing a lot of people first recognized was there's this very unique otherworldly lead guitarist in the band now, and he and Rich uh, connected musically in a way that that was spectacular and unique and really amazing, um, and 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 I've said this a lot, and it's not an on any way to take away any of Mark's importance, but the band was also a very different, he joined a very different band than the, than had made shake your moneymaker. All of which to say, it's just the perfect recipe. All the ingredients were just exactly perfect at that moment. And if you changed one thing out, it's a whole different situation. So the four guys that were there originally, the guy we added, and then the other guy we added, you know, we couldn't have done that if we had planned it, it just had to happen. It fell in the way it fell in. And, you know, that there's real magic in music. You know, chemistry is such an important factor. And and that's the one thing you cannot manufacture and fake. And we had it like crazy for a few years there. Well, yeah, and then, well, then that led to a marker, too. It was, again, it just keeps playing yeah. into the, the buildup of that album. sounded like nothing. That was, you know... Even though I, I'm surprised it didn't sell as big as I thought it did, actually, when I looked at the numbers, I thought it, would be, it was a lot bigger than it was because it's everyone listens to that album. I know it's. Yeah, no, it, it's it's well, well, Southern Harmony, I think, internationally was bigger than Shake Your Moneymaker. In the States, Shake Your Moneymaker is the king. I mean, it's still it's sold at least two, three times as much as any other record um, in Europe and in, in Australia and Japan. Southern Harmony was bigger um for whatever that's worth so th that made out there but amorica didn't do anything in real time anywhere um you know it, it took it took a long time to just even go gold and i and i but i i'm fairly confident it still it's never been gone platinum it's never sold a million copies but but it's a record that's very well known for sure and part of that is uh you know you can look back and recognize oh well what were we thinking i mean at the time it was a big problem with the album cover <laughs> there were there were there were two problems. The internal problem was no one liked it except Chris. Um, and then the external problem was nobody, you know, record right, liked it but Chris. <laughs> record store record stores were cool, but but other places, the box stores, you know, you, you still sell more records at Walmart than people want to yeah. admit, you know, at least in the 90s and Kmart yeah. and Target and all that. And they wouldn't stock it. So I mean, right away we just shot ourselves in the foot. The, the music landscape had changed, which it always does. But again, looking back, that record came out the same day as Nirvana Unplugged and Tom Petty's Wildflowers. Like, 
we might have thought about putting that off to the first quarter of 95. <laughs> like, you know, we that thing coming out at the end of January, we would have had a better chance to make a splash, but we weren't thinking that way at the time. And we'd already re recorded and then scrapped a whole album called Tall. And so, you know, we didn't want to be on a every, we wanted a record out every two years and we were at two and a half. And it was like, no, get this damn thing out. Well, and I, I, I think it was a great, great, great album. It's one of my favorites by you guys, actually. I have to say, um, and I think that it's yeah, it's a great. It's a, it, it's a, sorry, it, it's a great band. I mean, it, there's just no getting around it, you know. No, and, like, and if people want to nitpick about songs, that's fine. I mean, taste is everyone's right. Whatever you think is right, but but there's no denying that that band was pretty special right then. No, well, I think that was a band. It was a it was the benchmark for you guys and. It wasn't about commercial sounds. You guys are just on all your firing all cinders are just writing the best songs as a band. That's why I feel like it, you, you, there was no no design, no yeah. worrying about anything. Mm -hmm. Obviously, yes, Chris was yep. the, the cover, but at that point, Chris was also fighting, you know, on a stage, Miller and, and endorsements, you know, anything he could to fight the establishment, you know, on on looking yeah. into the future now, where he's a different guy. Um, but, but to that point, though, with with America, though, you guys did three snakes. It was a carryover, but it felt like the songs were a little bit different. Almost like it was a little bit more, not commercial, but it was a little bit more rock radio friendly in the structure of the song. There was, was a that, few, uh, I mean, good Friday. Good... Well, the, yeah, not, not, no, I mean, not really. There was, there was definitely, because there's some, there's some songs, you know, Bring On, Bring On, and How Much For Your Wings. You could call those weird songs if you wanted to, as far as in terms of radio. But then we had Good Friday. You know, that's just a classic right down the middle fastball kind yeah. of song, but it wasn't written to be that. It was the song that was written. There was another song at that time called Just Say You're Sorry that was a B-side. Yeah, we weren't doing that on we weren't we weren't trying to write those kind of songs, but we had like Just Say You're Sorry was a song that I always thought like that that's a total radio song. We just never got the take that we felt was perfect to put it on the record. Like we still we weren't, you know. We would record it and they'd listen and we were like, oh man, everyone's going to love that song, but it just never fit in with the rest of the record. And we were definitely not thinking, but we should still do it because everyone will love it. We were still just putting out, we were still putting songs together the way we thought they made sense. Right. I mean, and there were, we had songs that, um, you know, a song like Blackberry is very catchy. It's, yeah. I, I think lyrically somebody you know Desmond Child could have come in and written a set of lyrics that made it a giant hit like oh that's a fun song we just didn't think that way Chris heard it the way he heard it and we were cool with it and it's like it's a funny tongue-in-cheek song from a Black Crow's perspective it's not a tongue-in-cheek song the way a hit maker would write right. you know but it was good and never can either I mean those was I, I thought it was a really good album I to me all the yeah. albums are changing and I love an artist in a band that changes. I'd rather have an artist change do an album I don't like because you're doing something different than get the same album over and over again. I think so. I think we went five for five. Um, the fifth album being banned, which was not released. Um, yeah. you know, I, I think I and I don't I don't kick, you know, like I, Shaker Moneymaker was what it is. It's your first record, right? Producer driven, thank God. Great, great debut album. There's no getting around it. And then the next three records were a band uh, exploring and 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 reaching their full maturity and 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 getting the most out of it. And then we recorded a record called Band that was just fantastic. That for a lot of reasons was never released. And that was the to me that was the cherry on top. That was everything led to this record called Band, 
that just didn't see the light of day. And, you know, shit happens. But we we definitely, with that lineup, with with Mark on board and Eddie and Johnny, from 91, the end of 91 to the summer of 97, we were, that was just, that was just a great band, uh, you know, getting in our own way occasionally, but, but, but for the most part, riding above that and, and doing some really great work. Do you think that album will ever come out officially, not just the bootleg, you know? Well, there was a version of it in like 2006 called The Lost Crows. There's two yeah, records. There's Tall, yeah. the first, the record we scrapped before Marka and Band. Uh, Paul Stacy mixed those, but he didn't record them back in the day. The, the, it's just, and and Band was all done live. There's very few overdubs and there's a lot of bleeding. So you can only do so much with the mixes. Doesn't sound all that great, but but it it, it could have, it, it's a woulda, coulda, shoulda. Could have really been something special. And then you guys did uh, by your side and lions. Those were, you know, big big gap. I mean, you had a lot of breaks in between. They were solid albums. But during that time, actually, by your side and lions, you did, you guys got to do with 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 um, Jimmy Page, which was great for you guys. Yeah. And, and me being a Zeppelin fan and a Black and a Black Crows fan, you know, yep. besides myself, you know, <laughs> I you know, get the two great yeah. things together. It was great. Um, and I think the two stories that stuck out probably here the most is is the one when um. You can nap anywhere. That is, and uh, Jimmy Jimmy Page can sure. tell you napping. And yeah. people that don't know, could you touch on that just briefly? And you probably say it better than I do. I don't want to ruin it. This, that, oh, it's just it's just that simple. I learned early on in life as the youngest kid in a family. If you know, you it, it helps to just be able to sleep anywhere. I mean, there's there's fo- family photos of me like literally on a, laying on stairs, sound asleep. You know, like it just it's just always a thing. Like I just my brain just gets over exerted and it just shuts down. You know, I got a, I got a, you know, power nap thing. Um, I mean, I was doing that as my, I've always done that. And so when I got on the road touring, it's like, man, give me a chair and a dressing room in 10 minutes and I'll, you know, I'll be all good to go. It just became a part of, it's nothing I thought about consciously. Um, I mean, other people may always talked about it, but to me, it was just like, that's just me. Um, it comes in handy on flights. You know, it's 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 a good skill to have to just be able. My daughter's that my son can't do it. My daughter's great. She can she can just shut her eyes and go out for twenty minutes whenever she needs. It's a it's an important skill set. That's like a superpower. Well, yeah. Well, you know, you talk about Jimmy Jimmy Page uh, come in and saw you out and thought you were um, you're naughty out from, from drugs. Yeah, he was laughing. He was like, "Oh my god!" I like you know he I, he said something effective. I didn't think Steve was into drugs, you know, and everybody laughed. Like, no, that's just him because. He couldn't believe Jimmy is, well, I mean, it's just 20 years ago. He was still so amped before every show. He was right. like, every gig was like his first gig. It was incredibly inspiring to be around actually. So the idea of someone an hour before showtime, just knocking off, he just, he couldn't imagine it. He, he was blown away by that. And well, then the idea of you actually getting this nap time thing going, with him trying to lay down too and feel a little oh yeah down. right yeah that was that was late yeah that was that's just one of those funny happenstances you know he was we were in LA at the Greek theater and he his dressing room had two big couches in it and I just went in there and poked my head in we're shooting the shit and he looked at me and he goes I was thinking about trying to take a nap today you know and I said man knock it out and uh, and I said with this couch and and you know one thing led to another and suddenly you know he's on one couch I'm on the other and we're both laying there talking and then we both just fell asleep and I I woke up and he was still asleep and I was like all right yeah see that's great yeah. that's great. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, 
you do that. Like I said, I mean, I mean, if 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 nothing else, I I learned a lot from him, and you know, hope maybe if he learned anything from me, it was that there's nothing wrong with a good power nap. Yeah, that, that's it's a good story. It's a really funny story too to hear that. It's like to visualize it, really humanizes the situation. Um, yeah. But then actually, and, and then the other thing was the whole thing about Jimmy leaving the tour, and whether he was, you know. Because of he asked, did he want to co-write and work with the band a little bit, and how he maybe took it? Because the guys said it, they said they didn't say it. You know, you heard that he did say they did. Yeah, that's it. that's yeah, it, and and it's all in my book. You know, right, the long right. Story. We don't need to go over it. Um, I was surprised though. Either way though, that Jimmy kind of just left the tour though that quickly. You know, being a professional musician. Well, well he well, well well that's not the reason he left the tour. It's one of the reasons he was he was a mess. His back was totally screwed up. I mean. And I say that very clearly. He was in a lot of pain and he was working, you know, he was playing shows. He was having fun and really enjoying it. And, and which is any, but, but he had to be because he was literally in pain on stage every night. It was not an easy thing for him to do. And so, you know, uh, if there's one straw that broke the camel's back, I think it's that conversation he had with Rich. But it's not to say the back was. Uh, who knows how long it would have lasted? No, anyway. no, I, I get that. I meant like to see, the, you, the you, importance you, of that story to me. The, the 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 point of that story was always just what a ridiculous human thing. It's you know I I wasn't concerned about. I've never thought twice about what the songs may have sounded like if they'd written with them. It's not even about that. It was just a really big gaff, is what it was, and it was a, a, and and that's that's the that's and then of course it's just one of those things where you, where for me I just went I, I this is what, there's only so what am I doing here like what 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 why am I why do I still keep thinking this is going to start making more sense right well to me I think a is crazy to me because as, as a musician and a guitar player like yeah let's write some songs just it just sounds like awesome. Give me a page. It'd be so yeah, fun. No, it's a, it's a basic. The answer is right. always yes. It's right. just it, exactly. You, know, you don't have to do anything. You just say yes and figure it out later. I think what I meant. I'm sorry if I, if I misconstrued it. I meant like I was surprised that you had a, probably a better relationship with Jimmy than those guys did. And he's not like you know what? Hey Steve, I'm out of here. My back's killing me. The shenanigans are too much. Like he, he, you're like all of a sudden you're like he's gone. Like he didn't say anything to you either. Like you know. And I was surprised that he didn't like give you a no. heads up. You know. I, I don't, it, I've never even thought about it like that. I mean, you know, it's a big deal to, it, it was, it's a big thing to uh, pull out of that tour and fly to England and have back surgery. There's other things on his mind. I don't, I don't think he was too concerned about the status of our relationship, you know, exchanging recipes and you know what I mean? It's not like, I, I didn't think twice right. about that. I, when I say we got along great and we're friends, that's, like like people on tour together do you know right. we had a really easy rapport and i know he liked playing with me but that's that's as far as that went i didn't it, there was nothing else that should have been read into that when that was over and i hear you on that it's i agree um you guys did do a couple albums but then you guys came out and you, and you did war paint and then afterwards you guys ended up doing before the frost which i thought mm -hmm. were really good albums really organic yeah. and i feel like and i feel like you guys really was back back in your spot again um so when you guys dissolved again the billionth time, we all know why. It was kind of a disappointment, but once you read the book, and I want people to read the book, you get kind of get an idea of what you went through, what was going on, mm -hmm. and what would take somebody to leave. Be like, it's just the Black Crows. There's a lot more going on to that in the behind the scenes that you don't really see, you know, um, despite all the great music sure. you guys did. And, and I, the only thing that surprised well, me is a really easy way to. 
Sorry, I was going to say it's an easy explanation is, look, you're on stage for two hours, but you're in a band for 24 hours, you know, and and um, it takes, you know, bands, it, it, it takes a lot of work to keep a, a, uh, a band who respects each other and values each other's efforts and time and a band with boundaries and healthy personal relationships, that takes a lot of work. You know, so a band without those boundaries and a band that's at each other's throats, it's a, it's an insurmountable amount of work well, uh, is, was ultimately how I see it. I was surprised when I was done when he broke up, but when um, Rich ended up having doing the magpie salute, it feels like half mm -hmm. the band was there, except for obviously Chris was going to be there. But you were, were you invited at one point to be part of that or anything? Yeah, yeah, no, I got, he called and then we actually got together once too. He, he very much was wanting me to be a part of that it was not that i was interested in i mean i you know we were talking then at the time and very friendly and i was happy to talk with him about it i mean from the jump i said i'm not i'm not interested in this i i didn't understand i wasn't at all interested in playing black crows music unless it was the black crows and right. that had come and gone you know i mean simply put it's like you know i didn't like how chris ended the black crows but I doesn't make sense to me to play Black Crow's music with someone else singing those songs. Okay, so so well, I, I was gonna say it's a good thing because unfortunately, I actually had Mark on the show, and Mark, when him and uh, the brothers got back together again, he goes, he got dropped like a hot potato, and he couldn't even, he didn't even make a phone call himself. So you would have, you know, yeah, it would just been a, a fruitless situation. Um, but but moving forward, you know, today obviously they're doing they're doing their thing, you're doing your thing. You wrote the book. The book was quite successful, I think. Are you gonna write anything else, even if it's not about music? Like, you, like it doesn't be Black Crows related. Did you enjoy it? Uh, did I enjoy what? Writing the book. Like, oh know, yeah, no, it's great. A, I, a yeah, thing? no, I, I really, I, I really like writing. Um, I've, I've never written a book, but I've always written. I mean, I have a lot of short stories and just things, generally speaking, just for my own, just to get it all out. I've always written. Um, so the idea of sitting down and writing a book was daunting until I started. And then once I started, I, I, I was just swimming with the current, you know, I, I mean, it was the original book is almost a thousand pages long, you know, and I, and I, honest to God, I could have written for another year. I could have just kept going. It's just a, it's a, I enjoy that exercise, if you will. So yeah, that was all great. Um, and then I really enjoyed editing because editing is where you're really writing. That's where you really put the story together. I mean, I learned that it's real easy to, it's real easy to tell the story. It's much uh, more, the, there's the, the, the discernment involved in shaping that story and crafting it and keeping up with the thematic arc and all this stuff. You know, that's really fascinating. I really enjoyed that too. So I, I liked every bit of it, but that said, I'm not, I haven't thought at all about doing another one about any, about anything. You know, I don't have a fictional, I don't have some great American novel in me or anything, you know. Well, this is more because, like, I mean, you, you, you've done a lot. It's almost like you could be a, a, a life book with your antidotes and your, you, have, you can pull from different parts of your life through your experiences and stuff. I just think, you, you know, I was doing radio. You have a lot of things that you might not realize you kind of. Well, I think about. I get them all out on the radio. I mean, that's that's part yeah. of it. It's like I, I do it in those fits and starts and I do it in little bits and bops. You know, I've, I've always told, I've told stories about my family and about my uh, you know, the family I grew up in, my family now, my kids, my wife, my friend, whatever. I have a million stories that I tell all the time. So I don't feel the need to write them down because uh, 
you know, if you listen to Steve Gorman rocks tonight, there'll be some story at some right. point, you know, and it could be like, Oh my God, I danced in eighth grade. The first slow dance of my life was to this song. It could be that simple, or it could be something far more involved, but I'm telling stories all the time. All right. Fair enough. I just enjoyed the book. I thought it was, you know, a little more than just a story in it. Yeah. But, you know, your writing skills were, a well, little, you know, were, were good. Just like a regular author. I figured, you know, it'd be kind of cool if you continued on with that. Well, Anyway, I want to thank you yeah. for being on. I want people to check out Trigger Hippie, check out your 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 radio show, uh, put the links underneath the YouTube show and on the um, the podcast, and people yeah, check right it out on. after this. All right, man. So thanks a lot. Thanks, Appreciate man. It.